reading this evening continues our readings in uh, Zephaniah. You'll find it in the Church Bible on page 945. After the call to Judah earlier in the chapter to repent, Zephaniah uses judgment oracles against her neighbours before returning to Judah and to their capital, Jerusalem. Zephaniah chapter 2, starting to read at verse 4. Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, O Kerethite people. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you and none will be left. The land by the sea where the Carathites dwell will be a place for shepherds and sheep pens. It will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. There they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. I have heard the insults of Moab and the torts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will become awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the land. The nations on every shore will worship him, every one in his own land. You too, O Cushites, will be slain by my sword. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost on her columns. Their calls will echo through the windows. Rubble will be in the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become. A lair for wild beasts who all who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are 
evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning he dispenses his justice and every new day he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. I have cut off nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are destroyed. No one will be left. No No one at all. I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. If you'd like to turn back to that uh, passage, I wonder what is the first thing you think of when you hear the word pride. As Christians, I guess we would um, hopefully think of something actually quite negative. After all, most of the, the uses of the word pride in the Bible are of a human trait that is to be condemned. Pride is at the heart of human sin. And yet, if you were to ask somebody in the street, what they would think of it, it would probably be something quite positive. National pride. Pride in your achievements. London pride. A rather nice real ale. But how can the same word be seen quite differently? Because it doesn't take much to move from the positive meaning of the word to the negative. For some, there is a short gap between national pride a nationalism, or from pride in one's own achievements to looking down on the achievements of others. But also, when we are proud of our own achievements, it doesn't take much for us to think, well, we don't need anyone else. Least of all, we don't need God. There is a difference between being proud of our achievements and thanking God for them, and being proud of our achievements and becoming quite arrogant. Some of Jesus' most powerful teaching was against the pride and arrogance of the Jewish teachers. Let's just turn briefly, if you can, to Luke chapter 18, on page 1052. Luke 18, verse 9. This is uh, what it says here. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, 
God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who insults himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As we read through the prophecy of uh, Zephaniah, the way it is um, constructed with the, the oracles against the other nations, it lulls you deliberately into a false sense of security, of thinking, just look how bad those other nations are. I'm so pleased that I'm not like that. And just as you're switching off, thinking, oh, it's a good job, this has got nothing to do with me, it hits home that actually this is aimed just as much at you as you as it is as anybody else. We're all guilty of pride. We're all deserving of God's judgment. For the benefit of those who weren't with us last week, or in case you have uh, forgotten, let me just remind you where we left off in this uh, short series in, in Zephaniah. The prophet uh, Zephaniah was around during the reign of King Josiah, about 640 B.C., And he's given the people of Judah a big warning that the day of the Lord is coming. And describes that day with very vivid and and stark language. Have a look back at um, verse 15 of chapter 1. Where he says, that day will be a day of wrath. A day of distress and anguish. A day of trouble and ruin. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. A day of trumpets and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. As we saw last week, there will be a judgment because God is jealous for his honour. It is because of his nature as the one true God that he cannot tolerate worship of other false gods. He cannot tolerate the dishonouring of his name. And we should therefore praise God for his anger at sin and injustice. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. There will be a day of the Lord. But last week, we finished on a positive note because um, the first verses of chapter 2 say, before the appointed time arrives, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, it will be possible on that day to find shelter from the Lord's wrath. And the place where we find that shelter is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust that he's turned aside God's wrath through taking the punishment that we deserve. In the storm of that last day, we can be safe and secure in Christ. Well, having had that glimmer of hope at the uh, beginning of chapter 2, we return at the start of our passage this evening in verse 4 of chapter 2 to some further chilling prophecies. The countries all around Judah will be judged. But as we read these verses, we will soon realise that we too are being warned. And the first warning for us this evening is don't think that you deserve to escape God's judgement. Now to help us just picture where these countries are that um, will be destroyed, that are mentioned here in chapter 2, is a a map of of Judah. That's the um, 
green bit at the bottom there, uh, where it talks about Philistia or Gaza, that is to the, uh, the left or to the west of Judah. Um, Moab and Ammon are to the, uh, to the east, over the other side of the, the Jordan. Uh, Cush is um, to the south in modern-day Egypt or Ethiopia. And Assyria is to the north in modern-day Iraq. Now, in those days, these were powerful countries. Assyria, for example, was the country, the empire that had uh, conquered the, the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel, Samaria, as it says here. Um, it had taken those people into captivity in Assyria. Assyria was powerful. And yet, all these countries will be destroyed. It says there in verse 4, Gaza will be abandoned. Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied. And Ekron uprooted. They will be destroyed because the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, who has declared this will happen, is powerful enough to carry it out. Surely Moab will become like Sodom. The Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. That's interesting. If you know um, the book of Genesis, if you were to read the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that immediately after that account, we have the, uh, the story of how Lot's daughters get their father drunk and sleep with him in order to become pregnant. And it's the sons born from that incestuous relationship who form the founding fathers of the nations of Moab and Ammon. And later these countries will be, become enemies of, uh, of Israel. Moab and Ammon will be destroyed. And in verse 13 we read that Assyria will suffer the same fate. It says God will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate, dry as the desert. And the image we have here is of desertion, it's of desolation. We talk, it talks about the desert owl, the screech owl, birds associated with deserted places, roosting on columns, on ruins, where there is no human habitation. God has withdrawn his hand of blessing, and there is no human life left. Just birds flying among the ruins. It's a bleak place. And it's a clear declaration of the judgment that they will receive. But you ask yourself, well, what is it that these countries are guilty of? What have they done to deserve this, this judgment? And the answer is there in verse 10. Have a look down. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. Pride here is a sin because it's the belief that they are in control of their own lives, that they need no one else, that they are superior to all the other nations around them. The sin that Assyria was particularly prone to, after all, it was a strong and mighty nation. And yet in verse 15 we read, This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am, and there is none besides me. That won't have been lost on the people of Israel. They will know the first commandment of God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Or as it says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. 
Apart from me, there is no God. And so for a human race, for a nation to say there is none besides them is the height of arrogance. It's great to have a good old sing-song the other week for the Jubilee. Um, despite the, uh, the rain, didn't dampen the, the spirits. Uh, sing all those, those songs. Um, but I don't know about you, I must admit, I felt quite uncomfortable about singing songs like Rural Britannia, Land of Hope and Glory. You know, to pray that God would make us a mightier nation. After all, is that really what we want? I think what we probably need is for God to humble us as a nation, not to make us even more proud. We, like many other countries in the West, are full of people who are only interested in themselves, who say in their hearts, I am and there is none beside me. I don't need any God. These surrounding nations are punished for their pride. They're punished for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty because to mock God's people is to mock God himself. These nations, it says, have insulted, they've taunted, they've threatened God's people and one day there will be justice. As there will be for Christians today who who are insulted and taunted and threatened. A promise of justice that enables them to endure that suffering and not feel they need to to take justice into their own hands. One such person who suffered much at the hands of the Chinese authorities in the the 80s and 90s was Brother Yun, who wrote this book, Heavenly Man, who some of you, I'm sure, will have read, who despite the, the awful persecution and suffering he went through, trusted in God's justice. Zephaniah's prophecy of judgment on Assyria was actually fulfilled not many years later when Babylon conquered them and became the new world empire. But as we come to, to chapter, the end of chapter 2, we're thinking here probably, yeah, these countries will get what they deserve. At least we're okay. We're okay, Jack. But then comes the sting in the tail in chapter 3 because as the people of Judah begin to feel complacent and smug, there's a gradual realisation that God is also talking about them, about their rebellion. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And it's the people of Judah who are also guilty of disobedience towards God, of failing to accept rebuke, failing to put their trust in God, distancing themselves from God in their hearts. They're led by rulers, prophets, priests who are also corrupt. Look at verse 3. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant, They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. And the awful realisation for the people of Judah is that there is actually not much difference between these foreign nations and they themselves. They may worship other gods, but the people of Judah have turned their backs on the one true God. They have become corrupt. And the judgment that God declares after revealing the sin of his people is a universal judgment. Verse 6 says, I have cut off nations, their strongholds are demolished, I have left their streets deserted, with no one passing through. 
Their cities are destroyed. No one will be left. No one at all. And the hardest thing of this is that Jerusalem should have been an exception. Jerusalem should have been the one who heeded the warning. And it came out so powerfully in, uh, as Keith read it. I said to the city, look at verse 7. I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor will my punishments come upon her. Surely Jerusalem would have listened to the Lord. Surely Jerusalem would have returned to him after he warned them. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. And so the Lord declares his judgment. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Wait for me. Normally an expression to use to encourage people to wait for the Lord's deliverance, his rescue, wait patiently on the Lord. But here it is to wait for judgment. For the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them all, my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. The people of Judah were reminded that being part of God's covenant community was no guarantee of their individual salvation. And it's a warning for us Christians today, isn't it? We may think we are okay without realising that maybe we've become guilty of pride ourselves, thinking that somehow our salvation is down to us. But Ephesians 2 reminds us, isn't it, so strongly, it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And these tests here, that uh, the way it describes Jerusalem, are in many ways tests we need to ask ourselves. Because they will show us where we are spiritually. That rebuke in verse 2 of chapter 3. Are we obeying God's rules? Are we obeying God's rules? Are we making up our own, own rules about how we live our lives? Are we accepting correction? Or do we find it easier to correct others? Are we trusting in the Lord, even when times are tough? Not just through the good times, but even when times are tough. And are we drawing near to God day by day? Not just when we need him, when we come to in desperation. Are we drawing near to God? Let's take a good look at ourselves. None of us deserves to escape God's punishment. Because as it says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But like last week, there is still a glimmer of hope in this passage. That is the good news. Have a look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 2. The end of chapter, verse 6. Because having told Philistia they will be destroyed, God says this. He says, The land by the sea where the Carathites dwell will be a place for shepherds and sheep pens. It will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. There they will find pasture, in the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. And so we come on to our second point, that there will be a reversal of fortune for the remnant. I don't know what that word remnant conjures up for you. It has it's a bit of a sad ring to it, isn't it? It's sort of a, 
It's that bit of cloth that is left over after you've um, finished the curtains, the scrap you use to do the dusting with. If you've watched uh, Toy Story 3, it's the toys that are left over after Andy has grown up and gone off to college. It's the leftovers, the scraps, the, the fag ends. They used to be part of something much bigger in the old days, in the good old days, but now they're just discarded. But the word remnant in the Bible, whilst it does have some sad connotations of no longer being part of something bigger, the remnant is not the bit that is thrown away. The remnant is the bit that is saved for something special after the rest has been destroyed. It is a symbol of hope. Belonging to the remnant means survival. It's the salvation of the remnant that ensures humanity's continued existence. Noah and his family were the first remnant. In Isaiah, the remnant is described as a stump out of which will come a branch, the Messiah who will bear fruit. And here in verse 7, it's the remnant who will inherit the land of Gaza. There they will find pasture. There they will be looked after like a sheep is looked after by a shepherd. Where it's well fed, where it's cared for. Who will be their shepherd? The Lord God himself, who will care for them, who will restore their fortunes. With Moab and Ammon, it's a reversal of fortune. Have a look at uh, the end of verse 9. The remnants of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. Blessings will be taken away from those who don't deserve them and given to the remnant. The people of Ammon are receiving a holy judgment, but the remnant are receiving a gracious blessing. There are many examples, aren't there, in the Bible of reversals of fortune. One of the classics is uh, Joseph, uh, who's sold into slavery, only to become the second most powerful man in Egypt, the one to whom his brothers bowed down and begged for food. But the main reversal of fortune won't happen in this life. It will happen in the life to come. Let's just turn briefly to to Luke uh, chapter 16, where uh, Jesus tells the story of uh, a rich man and uh, Lazarus, Lazarus, Luke 16, page 1050, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. There will be a reversal of fortune. 
The remnant communities show that whilst Israel was the special nation of God, not all Israelites were saved. The remnant was open to all, but not all chose to be part of it. But some did choose to fear God, to repent, and in the New Testament, the remnants are the Jews who chose to accept the salvation that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, offered them. They are the ones who became the true church, the true Israel. Well, how does this apply to us today as we finish? In a country like ours, where the church is declining, where Christian values and respect for Christ are being eroded, it is easy to feel like we are the leftovers, the scraps, the the bits that no one is really interested in anymore. We want to be part of the crowd because um, it's more comfortable in a crowd. Our natural human tendency ever since we were at school was uh, to avoid being on the outside, to be excluded. And when we have views that are different from others, it makes us feel that maybe we've got it wrong. You know, surely the majority must be right. After all, we live in a democracy. Decisions are based on the majority. It's hard to be part of a minority. Minority communities are to be pitied. Some of you may have seen the film or read the book, The Help, which tells the story of life for the, uh, the black community in Mississippi in the, uh, the 60s. And today you might think, how could people be so arrogant towards others simply because of the colour of their skin? And yet this is only 50 years ago. And as Christians in this country, we, we may not experience the same sort of discrimination and persecution that, that they experience. But we are, as as Peter described us in his letter, strangers in this world. And we need to help each other. We need to encourage each other. We shouldn't underestimate how difficult it will be for for our children and for future generations to be strong witnesses for Christ in this country. We just need to look around us here. How many people here are, are under 40? How do we help them? How do we help ourselves? Well, by showing, first of all, that Christ is alive, that the Spirit is still active, changing lives, answering prayers, and by pointing to the reversal of fortune that we will one day experience in the life to come. We may make sacrifices in this life, and we'll wonder, is it worth it? But what we are denied in this life is nothing compared to what we will enjoy in the life to come. And our sacrifices are nothing compared to the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf, so that we will enjoy those blessings in the life to come. To be part of the remnant is not to be a cast-off. It's to be part of a privileged, chosen people of God who have a glorious future to look forward to. And we'll find out more about that next week. Let's pray.